Now, I can't let the Christmas season go by without making mention of my all-time favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, if you've never seen this movie, you, really, you owe it to yourself to watch it uh, and really sit down and watch it. Um, it's about a man named George Bailey who gives his life for the welfare of his hometown. He sacrifices all of his own ambitions and dreams for the sake of his family and his friends and his neighbors. He puts off all the grand exploits he desired to do with his life to stay where he is and, and simply help his town stay afloat. And see, in the course of the movie, as, as noble as that is, George has this deep seed of bitterness and resentment that he, that he just struggles with all throughout because he desired to leave the town of Bedford Falls and to go and do great things, to make a name for himself, to build things and accomplish things. But he never did. And so toward the end of the movie, George begins to believe that his whole life has been a waste. That he's a nobody, a failure. And in fact, everybody else would be better off if he'd never been born at all. Which is when his guardian angel, Clarence, shows up and grants him that wish for George to be able to see what the world would be like if he had never been born. And of course, the world is a much darker place without George Bailey in it. And in one of the most poignant moments in the, in the movie, George finds himself staring at the gravestone of his younger brother, Harry, Harry had fallen into an ice pond at the age of nine and drowned. Now, of course, in the real world, his older brother George was there to rescue him and to save his life, but not in this world. In this world, Harry, who otherwise would have grown up to be a war hero, now he never had the chance. And so when Clarence tells George of his brother's fate, George turns in anger. If you remember this scene, he says, that's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. And Clarence says, every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. And really, for the first time, reality sets in for George. That he sees himself as insignificant, as a failure, as a nobody, but the truth is that his life affected the lives of countless others, even saved lives without him ever knowing it. Y'all, when we think about the Christmas story from Luke chapter 1, and next week we'll look at chapter 2, this is a story that's so familiar to us, and it's so famous, that we might take some things for granted. We might actually lose sight of the fact that, that this whole story, in essence, is about a bunch of nobodies. And I don't say that as an insult, I just say it as a matter of fact. That apart from the Christmas story, we wouldn't know who any of these people were. We're talking about people like Mary and Joseph. These were about as normal, uh, insignificant kinds of people as they came. Next week when we look at the shepherds, the shepherds were as low on the social ladder as it gets. And then most surprisingly of all, even Jesus Jesus, who's the star of the show, the long-awaited Savior, the Son of God, Jesus comes into the world with no fanfare at all. No parade, no coverage, just a lowly child born to a lowly family 
laid down in a feeding trough. That's how the story goes. That God, in a sense, makes the, the most amazing thing he's ever done and gives no showcase to it at all. It just happens in the middle of nowhere to a bunch of otherwise insignificant people. Now, of course, this is precise and deliberate on God's part. And it's consistent with God's heart as we see it revealed all throughout the Bible. Notice as you read your Bible that almost always God does His great work, His glorious work, through insignificant people, through humble circumstances, and in unexpected, unlikely ways. Almost nobody is great and prominent when God first comes to them. He finds them in the wilderness, or tending the sheep, or doing some other thing that we would not esteem as great. And therefore the outcome is, when God works that way, that's when His glory and His grace shine the brightest. Because there is no boasting from the human side. There was nothing great about me or you, or even David or Abraham or Moses, or on down the list. Nothing great about them that we would esteem them. But God's work in them was great, and therefore we count them as blessed, right? And so today in Luke chapter 1, next week in Luke 2, we get to witness just that. God's most glorious work accomplished in the most unlikely way and through the most unlikely people, all right? So start with me here, Luke chapter 1, this wonderful and famous story, verse 26. Let's begin with the mother Mary. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, Gabriel said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, right off the bat, when we think of angels, we're always, I'm sure, thinking of something grand and glorious, bright and shining. And even when we think of the Virgin Mary, because of art that's been passed down throughout the centuries, we usually think of Mary as very bright and prominent. Usually there's some sort of halo painted behind her head, right? But that's not the picture Luke paints for us. Perhaps Gabriel was bright and shining, but he doesn't tell us that. He simply tells us that Gabriel comes to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is a backwoods town, and that's putting it mildly, okay? Now, some of us are from places like Amory or Kosciuszko or Yazoo City or Pisgah or Conroe. Wherever you're from, no matter how in insignificant you think it is, it's Atlanta compared to Nazareth, okay? Nazareth was, was barely a dot on the map. But that's where Gabriel goes. And he goes there to visit a poor young woman named Mary. Now, who's Mary? Trying our best to, to push out all the stuff we think we know through art and, and you know, biographies or, or, or television shows or whatever it may be. You know, the truth is, at least at this point, Mary is one of the nobodies we're talking about. Not an insult, just the truth. Because we know almost nothing about her. We know at this point only that she was engaged to a man named Joseph of the descendants of David. So there's a little feather in Joseph's cap that he came from the line of David. 
But Mary has no genealogy recorded in the Bible. We don't know who her parents were. We don't know what her life was like. We get no sense of her achievements or lack of achievements. The only thing we really know about her at this point is that she's engaged to a man named Joseph and she's favored by God. Well, that's actually, she's off off to a good start, I would say, if she's favored by God, right? There must be something special about Mary. But again, if we ask, okay, what does it mean that Mary is favored by God? Some people carry the the belief that Mary was uh, sinless. She never sinned, not before or after Jesus was born, and therefore Mary was favored because she was essentially the perfect vessel through which God would bring his son into the world. Mary had earned the right to bear the son of God because she was, in essence, perfect. But that's not a belief that comes from the Bible. Nowhere in here does it say that. And y'all, I think what the truth is, is actually much better than that. And it's not exclusive only to Mary, even. Y'all, that word favor that Gabriel uses, he uses it twice. The word favor, that's a Greek word. The word is keratao, okay? But what that means is to be endowed with grace. It means that God has poured his grace out upon you. That's what it means that Mary is favored by God. And y'all, that's consistent with how God operates throughout history, all throughout the Bible. God doesn't come to Mary because she's prominent or wealthy or well-connected. She's not an influencer. She has no celebrity. And and honestly, there's no sense in which Luke says Mary was praying a special prayer that beckoned God down in her direction. Nothing like that. God simply breaks in. He simply comes to her just as she is. Now, we know from reading Luke that Mary is very humble. She's very faithful. She's godly. I'm not trying to diminish her here. But we don't get any indication that she was the best woman available, that she's somehow better than all the other faithful women of Israel. And I don't think that that would be the point at all. Simply that God's choice of her is predicated on God's grace toward her, right? And so God does not say, Gabriel does not say, Mary, you've earned the right to be called the mother of Christ. You've won the contest. You've prevailed over all the rest. No, he says, God has given you favor. The favor of God is upon you. He has endowed you with his grace. And y'all, that is how anybody comes into relationship with God. Not on the basis of what we do to earn his favor by being good, but by receiving his favor, by receiving God's grace, which comes to us freely because he's good. And so we don't diminish Mary here, but I do want to have proper perspective that Mary was a sinner just like the rest of us. And she's wonderful, and we'll see the qualities that make her wonderful here today, yes, but The emphasis is on God's favor, not on anything she or that we could earn. And so Gabriel tells Mary, by grace, what God's about to accomplish. This is verse 31 now. Gabriel says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, that, that announcement escalates very quickly, but um, actually, I will just imagine for a moment, verse 31 only, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now, that promise right there all by itself is pretty earthy. You know, there's still an angel making the declaration, but it's, it's pretty normal stuff. I mean, this is stuff God does in the scripture. As if to say, Mary, eventually you and Joseph are going to get married. You're going to conceive a son, and he'll be a special boy. And so I want you to name him Jesus. And in the normal course of things, God will anoint him in the way that he anointed maybe Samson or somebody like that. But that's not what's going on here. And thankfully, it doesn't stop in verse 31. We get to see the supernatural, very cosmic, eternal scope of the promise, right? He will be great, Gabriel says. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of David, and his kingdom will have no end. Now that's a promise. That's an assignment right there to give to this sweet young girl. The announcement begins uh, in a spectacular way, but it only grows and expands from there. Now, again, if you and I are familiar with this story, most of us are, then we might miss the fact uh, that, that what Gabriel's saying here is, is uh, it's off kilter. The, 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 the proclamation, the promise that's being made is so grand and spectacular, and yet the means, the achievement of it, the accomplishment of it, is so strangely ordinary, right? What we have here in this promise, we've got the creator of the universe. He's going to send his son into the world. God is going to come down to us. Spectacular. The most important thing that's ever been done. And his kingdom will have no end. It's, it's an eternal implication here, right? And yet he's going to do it in a way that really makes no human sense. In a way that we would not have projected when we think of God. Now, here's how I would, I would have done it, right? I mean, if, 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 if the most important thing that ever happened was about to happen, and I were in charge, I were on the committee making the decision, there'd be like a golden escalator coming down out of heaven, right? Or, or Jesus would be like riding on a Pegasus or something, something really spectacular, bright and shining as the sun, with angels and trumpets all around, declaring, I mean, as much of a spectacle as possible to make sure that everybody sees and hears and knows exactly what God is up to here. And there would be a grand reception to follow with Chick-fil-A and bread pudding and eggnog. All of our favorite things would be there. The very best of everything. Because here's the truth. You only get one chance to make a first impression. And so why wouldn't we make it grand, spectacular, right? Isn't, I mean, that's what the promise would lead us to believe. The son of the most high is going to enter into the world. And yet, here's how God does it. He sends an angel into a town nobody really cares about, a town not even on the main road, to a young woman nobody's ever heard of, and says, from your womb, you will bear a son and call him Jesus. Meaning, Jesus is not just going to pop into existence, grand and glorious, for all to see. He's going to enter the world the same way we did. 
He's going to reign and his kingdom will have no end. But he comes to us in absolute humility. The king of the universe entering into the world through a mother's womb. He's made himself lowly in order to rescue the lowly. That's Christmas. That's why we're here right now. Because God brought himself low in order to save those who couldn't save themselves. And so, y'all, if if God wanted to make an impressive show of his power, he could have. He's done it before. I mean, we read story after story of God parting seas and raining fire from heaven and sending angelic hosts. But right here in the middle of nowhere, he makes his purpose known. He does the opposite of what human pride would demand. And y'all, if you're familiar with uh, the, the writings of the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, you don't need to turn there, but Paul makes this point, that as it concerns our salvation, this is how God chooses to work. God chooses the things that are low in order to bring shame to human pride and the assumption that we can save ourselves. God chooses things that are abased. God chooses things that would appear to be foolish to us, weak and unworthy things. God chooses to work there so that his grace may be made apparent. There is no room for boasting. Only the glory of God can do things like this. Only God can bring about the deliverance of those lost in sin, so that he gets the glory by coming all the way down to the bottom. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, right? And so this is how it's going to be done. And sweet Mary finally gets an opportunity to ask a question. Maybe she had a lot of questions. She gets one good one in, and it's one that we all ought to wonder. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Now, this is not a lack of faith on her part. This is, she's just genuinely curious, like anyone would be. How can a woman who's never known a man have a baby? And here's the answer, verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, that's an amazing statement. The same God who created the whole universe from nothing, who spoke all of life into existence, everything, is now going to create life in your womb, Mary, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And for that reason, Gabriel says, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And so there's something special about Jesus that is dependent upon the virgin birth. And so, you know, uh, maybe over time, people have come to this question and said, okay, well, if, if, if God enters the world the same way we do, if God takes on flesh just like us, how does he remain clean and holy? How is God not somehow corrupted by the sin that corrupts you and me? It's a fair question. Well, here's the answer. The answer comes to us in what we call the virgin birth. And y'all, there are a great many uh, Christian traditions, liberal traditions that just you know, laugh off or, or push aside the idea of the virgin birth because it's, you know, you know, stuff like that doesn't happen. It's almost embarrassing to believe stuff like that. Uh, wrong. Let me, y'all, let me give you three quick reasons, and these are not the only reasons, but I try to do this every year as a reminder to us. 
The virgin birth is not just an interesting detail. It's essential to our belief in the nature and the identity of Christ. And here's why. Three quick reasons. One, it plainly shows us that the birth of Jesus was supernatural. Remember, the promise doesn't end in verse 31, that you and Joseph will conceive a child, and he's going to be really special. No, he will be the son of the Most High. Jesus was not a normal, sinful human who simply rose above the rest of us and by God's anointing did something great. No, he is the divine son of God. And so for him to enter into the world, he comes to us uniquely. He's like us in every respect, yet without sin, because his birth is supernatural. And secondly, see, we find in Jesus the fullness of both deity and humanity. We say that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and there's not really a category that we have that can fit both, right? We tend to think it's got to be 50-50 at best, or 70-30, or some combination of the two. But no, the scripture says Jesus is God and man. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a woman. God can accomplish both at once, and he has. And then y'all, thirdly, the virgin birth shows us that the solution to our sin has to come from outside of us. Uh, when King David wrote in the Psalms of himself, he said, I was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. David saw himself as in some deep way corrupted and in need of God's grace from before he was even born. And you and I, as, as Christians, we share this belief. Again, contrary to our assumptions about us that we're pretty good and we just need a little you know, dusting off. No, before we were ever born, we were already in need of God's grace and redemption and saving before we ever made a conscious choice to sin. We've never been totally pure. And so when Jesus comes through a woman by the power of the Holy Spirit, Gabriel says the child will be holy from the beginning, unstained by the sin that stains us. And therefore, he is the one able to save us by serving as the perfect sacrifice in our place. Now, this, this theological point is not interesting trivia. It's certainly not something we should be embarrassed about. The fact that virgin births don't happen is, is kind of the point. It's a miracle, and it's a necessary miracle. Okay? Y'all, Jesus didn't trade being God for being man. He comes as the fullness of God and man, and therefore he is the only one able to save us from our sins. And we celebrate him for being born just like us, yet holy, yet conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now, okay, I've mentioned this a couple of times already, how familiar this story is, how famous it is, right? And if you're, I mean, if you're anything like me, I, there's no telling how many times I've heard this, seen it, heard sermons about it, read it. And, and so for me, it's, you know, it, we almost become numb to it and to the, to the shock of it and the, the outrageous nature of what's actually happening, happening here, okay? Y'all, this is outrageous. What we're talking about, an, an angel visits a young woman and says, by the Holy Spirit, you will give birth to the Son of God, and we've heard it so many times that we say, well, yeah, sure, that adds up. 
mean, it's just, it's how, you know, that's, that's how the story goes, right? And we, we might lose the sense of this is, this is outrageous. This is it's crazy for us to think not only, like we mentioned this last week, not only that God could do something so crazy, but that he would. That this would be God's way of bringing light into the darkness, of bringing salvation to the world. The whole premise, it just, it just doesn't, it's not meant to make sense to us only on the surface, right? And so I think it's helpful for us to recognize and just acknowledge that. It's a crazy story, right, from a mere human perspective. But how much crazier and how much more burdensome would this have seemed in the moment to Mary? I mean, certainly she's looking at an angel. Super, I mean, there's a supernatural reality right in front of her. So the, the, the craziness of the scenario, right, I mean, it's, it's right in front of her eyes. Okay, so maybe she'll, she's buying the fact that God's at work here. But just imagine, me? Are you, did you find the right house? Are you in the right place? Me? The burden of carrying the weight of this assignment. And so if we can imagine, and of course we have to imagine this, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but if we can, I think it's okay for us to imagine Mary trembling here, not with a halo painted around her head, but a young girl scared, confused, perplexed, it says it. But look at what she says in response to this assignment. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What a response. Now, y'all, we've covered this already. Mary was not divine. Mary was not superhuman. But she's impressive. I mean, she is humble. She is faithful. She is godly and obedient. Read the rest. Now, we're not going to do this in, in, on Sunday morning worship. Just read through the rest of Luke 1 and see what we call the Magnificat, Mary's song that she then sings in response to these things. It is incredible. May your will be done, she says. I'm yours. Behold the bondservant of the Lord. I am yours, God. I belong to you. You do whatever you want. I'm here for it. And I just wonder if your heart, if my heart, carries that same posture day to day. We wouldn't necessarily need an angelic visitation. But just day to day, is that my heart? Lord, I'm yours. Whatever you want, whatever you command of me, whatever you call me to do, whatever would bring glory to you through my life, I'm yours. May your will be done in me. If that's not our heart's posture, then we ought to pray that it would be. And we ought to take Mary's example here to the deepest place of our heart. I want to be more like her. Otherwise a nobody, right? Otherwise insignificant, not even a dot on the map. And yet here in this moment, God, this, in, this insurmountable assignment, let it be. I'm yours. It's amazing. I want to be more like Mary. You should want to be too. Y'all, we, we spoke at the beginning of this message uh, about a fictional man named George Bailey, right? And the lesson that he comes to learn, George only thought he was insignificant. He only thought he was a failure. 
But he realizes what we've known really from the beginning, as, as those who are watching the movie, we find out and he finds out that he was wrong because he realizes in the end that he's really had a wonderful life. Despite all his feelings of insignificance of being a nobody, George was a great success to the people that mattered most. He was the richest man in town. And y'all, as much as I cry every time I watch that movie, and really all throughout at this point, not just at the end, um, as much as I love that movie, and I love the lesson, no man is a failure who has friends. Um, we've got much better news to celebrate today than that. Uh, and I, and I want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not bashing my favorite movie here, but there's a little bit of a self-help message there at the end that is very prominent and prevalent in our own culture that we need to be aware of and that we need to fight back against. This idea that you and I really are deep down wonderful. We just need to realize it. We just need to recognize it and, and look down deep so as to activate our wonderfulness. We're really great. We're really awesome. We just need people around us to affirm that. Maybe a guardian angel could come by and let us know how great we really are in the end. Y'all, that, that's not good news. As attractive as it is, as appealing as it is, I'd love to think of myself that way, but that's not good news. For people like you and me, if we really know our own heart, if we really recognize the truth of the Bible, then we've got much better news than that. The good news is that right smack dab in the middle of our failures and our sins, God has entered in with his favor and his grace. That right into the middle of our real lowliness and insignificance, God has come down all the way to the bottom where we really live. And y'all, I don't like the fact that these things are true about me, but it's very freeing to acknowledge it that right now 99.99999% of the whole world doesn't even know I exist, nor do they care, and they're doing just fine without me. I'm not going George Bailey on us. I'm just, I'm just acknowledging reality here. They don't know we're here. And in that sense, we could, we could sink down to the level of saying, I'm nobody, I'm nothing, I'm insignificant. And in some very real sense, that's true. But not in the eyes of the one who made us. Not in the eyes of a heavenly father, willing, because his heart was so filled with love and mercy, to come down into the darkness, into our lowliness, into all of our insignificance and failure, and to take on our lowliness with us and for us. That's Christmas. And y'all, that's the, the central message of the Bible is not that we need to recognize our greatness and strive to make ourselves something. No, the good news is that the great God of the universe, the one who is great, has made himself nothing for our sake. And if we really begin to believe that, then stuff starts making sense. These outrageous stories, it makes sense that God would do this through people like Mary and Joseph, otherwise unknown. That God would go to places like Nazareth and Bethlehem, 
otherwise forgotten. And then maybe it begins to make sense that Jesus, in all his greatness, would be willing to be born himself, born into that same obscurity, alone, unnoticed, poor, and fragile, lying in a manger. And this carries over from last week. If you were with us last week in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not demand his glory for himself and hold on to it, but he made himself nothing for our sake. This is how low God is willing to go to save us who cannot make ourselves acceptable, who cannot be somebody in his eyes. But God who has mercy on sinners comes down to make us his own. Y'all, the son who was born for us, the son in the manger is the same one who carried the cross and died for the forgiveness of our sins. And by faith in him, we are rescued. Out of all failure, all sin, all insignificance and nothingness, all sin and death, everything that works against us, everything that would condemn us, has now been broken forever because Jesus Christ has come to rescue us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so may we receive today, may we receive this precious gift of God's favor, of God's grace. The child born in Bethlehem, the child promised here in Nazareth, is the one who's come to reconcile us to God as a free gift. He came all the way down for you. Let's pray. Lord, would you this morning um, just uh, uproot and remove what our pride demands? In our pride, we would expect less humility from you and more fireworks. And what's more, in our pride, we, we would expect the message of Christ to be come up to my level and be great like me. Prove yourself worthy. You've got it in you. You just need to realize it. Father, thank you that no such message exists. Thank you, Lord, that, that your, your wonderful word brings us low and cripples our pride so that we might have hope and joy and life by looking to Christ. And so, Father, would you help us this morning just to, to see this running theme? We saw it last week. We'll see it again next week. This pure and perfect, gracious humility right at the center of your heart to come all the way down for us, to enter in without fanfare, without a need. Lord, you don't need 
to be celebrated here. We're the ones with need that you've come to meet. Thank you, Lord, that you've met our need so abundantly and wonderfully and freely and fully in Christ. Father, would you help us uh, during this very unique and precious season, Lord, would you help us where we're so prone to lose sight of the glory of Jesus and the, 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 the full expression of his love and his willingness to pour himself out for us. Father, make Jesus so sweet and so wonderful to our eyes. Um, Father, where we're, where I know we're distracted right now. I know I am. So much that needs to be done. So much ongoing. So many things uh, on, the, on the list right now. Father, without neglecting all those things, I pray, Father, that we would not uh, become ensnared by them and miss the, the opportunity we're given to treasure you, to obey you, to love you, to worship you as you deserve. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to breathe a sigh of relief right now and rest we have found favor with God. Not by any good we've done, but by the good done for us in sending your Son. Lord, let that amaze us and let it, let it uh, animate everything we do. In Christ's precious name, amen.